welcome to Sports and Society episode 59. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing well. I'm currently watching your Arsenal team scoring some goals today. Uh, I've so given up on them at this point that I have no idea what's happening. I only know one player on their team. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just because you're ignorant, Kyle. Come on now. It is, but my point is I, I, Arson has fielded like 28 different teams in the last three years. But like there's just so many different names that keep popping up. And I, it seems, too, that he, as you said maybe last week, that he's losing his team a little bit. And I wonder if that's just evidence of it. Well, you know the fact that um, they couldn't get rid of they that they couldn't get somebody in and let Sanchez go. I think will hurt the team in the long run. Yeah, um, but uh, you know it, it's hard for me because, like you say, the team is interesting. But like I look at these guys on the team, um, and like I, there's no difference in quality in my mind between the players on this team and the players on Man U or Chelsea or anywhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's what I find frustrating is that like a team that fields a front three of Danny Welbeck, Mesut Ozil, and Alexander Lacazette should be able to challenge for top four, if not win the league every year. Um, yep. And so that's, that's what's frustrating for me at this point is we just haven't, I, I don't feel like he's got gotten them to the edge that they need to have. Right. Well, I don't know. I, I This is absurd for me to say this. I still hold out hope for freaking uh, Jack Wilshire. Jack Wilshire. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a second to even register that. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Oh, man. Um, but I... I want to start with what I think is the most absurd story of the week, which is this Ezekiel Elliott crap. Yep. Uh, which I think uh, goes down to just how absurd the football structure is these days. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, we may never know the specifics of the case, but there's enough there that would lead us to believe that something is going down. Yep. Uh, and yet the NFL handles their business so poorly. And it's not like this was a one-off. This was handled the same way that every other NFL discipline case is handled. Right. And the, that a federal judge would call it fundamentally unfair and stop it. Uh, right. It's just ridiculous that they have such weak structures in place to deal with that. Yeah, it, it's, it's hard to fully articulate the absurdity uh, because it's not like that just saying that sentence like this is absurd it, is not enough like there, there there's no. there's not enough uh, vitriol there's not enough um, honesty in just saying that statement because to point to a policy and say hey we're just following the policy and to have a federal judge take all of like six minutes of his day to realize that your policy is an injustice, it is absurd, it is racist, and it is laughable and doesn't even hold up anywhere near uh, to the stature of a federal court system is, 
I, it's just evidence of the silliness of how they operate. Um, but even silliness isn't a, a harsh enough word. Um, but I, I did appreciate the the Players Association comment um, where they released and said that their discipline discipline policy has been imposed, uh, which I feel like is a, a backhanded way to use their language in some way. <laughs> you know, like I'm mm-hmm. going to use your own language on you, like you big idiots. <laughs> Hmm. It's also funny for me to think about a federal judge looking at um, the upper brass of the NFL and just like comically, just just like you guys are pathetic. Like (laughs) you have no idea how this works. Um, But it also reeks then too of this stuff, even associated with Kaepernick as well. That there, I don't know what else to call it, but collusion. If, if the NFL arbiter mm-hmm. immediately agrees with the NFL on this and then a federal judge takes all of five minutes to say, like, no, that's not right, then obviously the arbiter <laughs> was coming from the side of the NFL. Yes. <laughs> all the evidence points to that. Um, so, yeah, just more absurdity from them. Well, it's just kind of ridiculous that – and what frustrates me perhaps most of all is not that the NFL can't get its house in order, but the fact that you've now wound up in this situation where essentially you've got a man who probably at this point, it appears, abused his significant other, and yet he is coming off looking better uh, in the long run from this. This is a great point. I mean, how really important point. How bad does your infrastructure have to be to allow that to be the case? Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, freaking, freaking NFL. Hopefully, it's evidence of further holes being poked in an, in an old boy system. Yeah, but they, I mean, they don't care. It's become quite clear. Well, yeah, when they make seven billion dollars a year, this is such a side issue to them when they've re-upped his contract so you know yep they apparently love him yeah he's doing exactly what the league wants him to do right and by the league we mean 30 old white dudes exactly and so in similar vein what did you make of the whole michael bennett story so this i kind of stumbled upon this after the fact i hadn't really kept up with it much um, but it just, what saddens me most is how unsurprising it is on some level. Right. Well, so the story is, uh, for anyone that hasn't heard it is Michael Bennett was in Vegas for a boxing match and there was, um, there was a shooting in Vegas that night. And the police mistook Michael Bennett as a potential suspect in the shooting. And it wasn't just that the police, like, questioned him or say, hey, did you know anything about this? It was full on face in the concrete, handcuffs to where it was cutting off circulation in his arms, a knee in his back and a gun next to his head. Mm -hmm. And a quotation from... Michael Bennett, that the police officer said, if you don't shut up, I'm going to blow your fucking head off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's 
more of the same. This is uh, this is normal. Um, the the police brutality and police violence part of this is is unfortunately really normal. Uh, I think it it there's a, a side conversation to this is Michael Bennett uh, being such a leader in the mm-hmm. activism that's coming out of the NFL right now. Um, I don't think it adds like it's not like it makes the police brutality more significant because it's significant every time it happens, but it does. Um, you know, for if if for those that study like social movements and how social movements work, um, it appears that this might turn into a, a a major moment. I think I think some some real significance for all the movements that are at work in the NFL right now, that this, this could be um, something really significant. Oh, you're more hopeful than I am then. Right. Well, the other side of that is I'm already frustrated at how much I haven't heard about it. Mm-hmm. You know, that um, it, For it already all of the seems ridiculous like a, NFL coverage and there's nothing on this. Right. Yeah. The first week of the NFL and, this is page three or four. Oh. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's just at the point where I don't know what to do about it anymore. And so it's hard to get anything other than just really frustrated with it. Yeah. <clears throat> and of course, we're not the ones that are the most frustrated with it. Of course. I did appreciate the headline from an article in the Undefeated about the uh, Cleveland Police Union saying that they're going to not hold the American flag at the game on Sunday because of all the Cleveland Browns players that took a knee during the national anthem. And the headline said, Police Union uh, protests the American flag because someone else protested the American flag. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, nice, well played. <laughs> it's interesting to me because I think, um, you know, teachers unions, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, have gotten a bad rap uh, over the last mm-hmm. 20 years or so, largely yeah. because they kind of refuse to hold, or my reading of it is because they refuse to hold bad teachers accountable. Yeah. Um, and we sure seem to be saying the same thing with these police unions. Like, surely they know that these actions are reprehensible and undefensible, but they refuse to call out their own. Um, And I, my hope would be that, you know, we can figure this out before it becomes just an incredibly, uh, a situation like the teachers union where it becomes so irreparable that I don't think there's any way forward for it. Right. But maybe we're already there. Yeah. I'm afraid we might already be. Well, I want, I want to talk about something fun now. Is that all right? Please, please do. Um, we didn't talk about this last week, and, but in passing, but um, what excites you more, Kyrie going back to Cleveland to play or the chance for Carmelo to play on someone other than the Knicks? Hmm. Uh Probably Carmelo on someone but the Knicks. I want to see Carmelo in a playoff game that matters. 
I feel like I've never truly gotten to see that since uh, Syracuse played um, <laughs> in the NCAA finals. I haven't seen <laughs> Carmelo Anthony, one of the greatest players of our generation. I've never seen him play in a game that matters. Yeah. Um, and that's a shame. That would be really fun to watch. Uh, Kyrie Irving, I I have a, a small prediction. I'm not going to put much weight behind it. I think Kyrie Irving from here on out is going to be a phenomenal player that never quite matters all that much. And I, I say that in terms of like, I think he will be a Hall of Fame player. I think he'll average like 25 and seven for his career. I think he'll score a ton of points, tons of highlights. Uh, I think he's a good person. I like, like what he stands for and how he handles himself. I think he's awesome. Uh, but I think he'll enter this kind of like second tier of NBA guys that are Hall of Famers, but never quite in that top category. Interesting. So you would put him yeah. in the Tracy McGrady category then? This is exactly who I'm thinking of. I think he's a Tracy McGrady. See, I, I disagree. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm hopeful, but um, I would uh, be willing to bet a pie that um, <laughs> that Kyrie will make the finals uh, with the w- with another team in his career. And potentially even win that finals. I might, you know, I might even put a pie on the Celtics beating uh, the Cavs in this year's playoffs. Hmm. That would be a hell of a story. I just can't see it happening. I just uh, there's something about him that gives that makes me want to trust him, and I don't know what it is, but I think he's way smarter than we think he is. He does think the world's flat. Maybe, but I. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, this ruins my whole argument. Never mind. It will never happen. <laughs> uh, no, I, I hear you. I agree. And I, I would hope that happens. That would be awesome. But I also am like starting to be convinced that maybe the Cavs are better now without him. Oh, I don't buy that for a second. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, cause there were a couple of sabermetric articles this week about what Isaiah Thomas at full tilt would mean for the Cavs. And I'm, I'm maybe not convinced, but convinced enough to be curious, like, Oh, okay. I can see that working out that way. And essentially what it was saying is Isaiah Thomas, especially at the end of last year was averaging like 28 points and he was doing it being double teamed the whole game. So I think um, Isaiah Thomas will never be a relevant basketball player again. Well, I, the way that his game completely deteriorated when it mattered in the playoffs for me and the way that he's got this injury, um, his height, the, his whole game being predicated on this um, this attitude thing, I think he could not have wound up in a worse place than Cleveland. And I think that we will see him taking on much the same kind of role that Kevin Love has taken on. I would not be surprised 
if Kevin Love is the one that is really good next year and we're wondering what it would take for Isaiah to be reasonable next year. Well, yeah, I mean, Kevin Love just moved up a spot, that's for sure. Yeah. And I agree that Isaiah Thomas is an unknown, and I could very easily see Isaiah Thomas and LeBron not getting along. Yeah. If Isaiah Thomas has, like, a night where he's, like, three for 18, <laughs> LeBron is not going to have much patience for that. Well, and for me, the bigger issue is that uh, Isaiah's entire game is predicated on being a underdog. Um, right. And he, LeBron's team is never going to be an underdog because um, they're just not. But also I think LeBron doesn't ever want his team to think that they're the underdogs. Um, mm -hmm. And because of that, I think that it's just the worst fit that he could have wound up with. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's going to be allowed to have the same anger that he had that fueled him in Boston. I can see that. That's a good point. Anyway, this is Brad's hot take segment for the day. So, <laughs> uh, Did it matter, or to what extent did it matter, that the semifinals at the U.S. Open was all uh, Americans on the women's side? I think it's exciting, not necessarily because it was all Americans, but because they were – young exciting players mm -hmm. um i think that uh, women's tennis should be worried about what happens when serena leaves um and i think players like caroline wozniacki and um you know this whole second tier of people um they're fine but they're none of them are players that are exciting whereas i think the sun yeah and the Madison Keys are just exciting tennis players that tennis, women's tennis uh, would be lucky to have take that next step. Yep. Yeah, I think Madison Keys has more of a chance to fill that role than Sloane Stevens does, but Madison Keys is going to be a great face for tennis for the next few years. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, I think she's awesome. Meanwhile, and, we keep putting our faith in Sam Query and John Isner on the men's side. Oh, no, no one does that. The, the media <laughs> pimps that narrative. Nobody cares. <laughs> I mean, how, I, I would, yeah. how, how smart does Andy Roddick look at this point for just getting out? Very, very, very smart. And I'm sure he's much uh, happier, too. I was struck by a quote from Sam Query this week when it was talking about uh, someone asked him about his sponsors and he didn't know what they do. He didn't know what the companies did. <laughs> Dude, this guy. And he, he's like really matter of factly. He's here's a quote. He says, you know, literally you just go with who pays you the most. I don't care what's on there. I just put it on and get paid. That's all I care about. I don't even know what Guino and Mary core are. <laughs> Well, you probably just lost yourself a shit ton of money, man, but whatever. <laughs> I was like, man, nothing could sum up my, my views on Sam Query better than that quote. Well, it's, uh, I, I want to use this as a segue into um, there's an ESPN article about 
Maverick McNeely, who is a uh, golfer at Stanford that has decided to go pro. Um, and the article was couched in these ways that um, he had all of this. He, he's got like a, a bachelor's in business administration from Stanford. And he's all set up to make a bunch of money in the private sector. And he's chosen to become a professional golfer. Um, and like the, the article was expressing that this is unusual. Why would he do that? Um, and yet I would be willing to go out on a limb and say that um, 98% of tennis players, 99% of professional golfers, and uh, 95% of U.S. soccer players would all fall in that same category. Yeah, this, this is not a risk for him. No. <laughs> Let's say he does this until he's 35. He's still going to make a bunch of money as, a, as an investment banker when he's done. Yeah, this this is a business move. This is like this is a, nothing could be more evident or clear evidence of white male privilege than this. Like, <laughs> oh, I'll get a bachelor's from Stanford. In the meantime, I'll play some professional golf. Yeah, like <laughs> it's just not a risk. Oh my, I, I do. It, it started me thinking about what, um, like what Jordan Spieth would be doing if he wasn't a professional golfer right now. Making even more money in the business world, which is amazing to think about because he's making like $500 million a year now. Yep. Yep. He would probably <laughs> sign like a $120,000 bonus check to sign up for uh, KPMG or something along those lines. Yep. <laughs> oh man. That's Comical. <laughs> well, speaking of golf, you've been watching the FedEx Cup. I have not. Well, you missed two pretty exciting tournaments, man. I know. Yeah, I know I'm missing out, but it, it's I like take a. I think I take a subconscious mental break after the last major, and then mm -hmm. the last two weeks of FedEx Cup, I get back into it a little bit. I can see that because they do have this week. Like this week, there's nothing happening. Um, yeah. And so I think it's almost intended that these first couple of weeks um, lead into these other. But if that's the case, they've got to be kicking themselves because I don't think they could have expected better results than those first two weeks. I mean, to have Jordan and just and Dustin going after it the first week and then the second week to have Jordan and Justin Thomas going after it. I mean, that's like, that's what the PGA tours salivates over. Yep. I would imagine too, the FedEx cup has been a smashing success for them. It can't have been anything other. I think the players yeah. have all bought in and I think that's huge. Yeah. The, the 10 million that turns into 40 million in like 20 years or whatever, it's that's quite a thing to dangle out in front of them. Especially too, it's been proven like that mathematically they all have a shot. Mm -hmm. The the first round of the FedEx Cup, I think 120 guys have mathematical opportunity, and a couple of times the someone who's in like the 60s, yeah, has come out to win it. So it's a legitimate shot for everybody. Um, well, I do uh, want to mention here before we move on, um, you are excited or ecstatic about $2 hot dogs at the Falcons. <laughs> <Stadium. laughs> 
I'm pretty ecstatic about it, to be honest. <laughs> you know what I'm ecstatic about, about the Falcons' new stadium is that they have a Chick-fil-A franchise inside, which will remain closed for all games but one because they'll all be on Sundays. Shut up. They're really going to stay closed on Sundays? Yes. There will be another chicken restaurant open there, but it will not be Chick-fil-A on the Sunday game day. Baptists are intense. <laughs> I, it's just amazing. I mean, I, you know, good for you sticking to your principles, folks, but it's just kind of amazing. I can't imagine how much they're paying for that spot. Oh man, that's awesome. That only makes me happy. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, I just always think back to when I was 16 years old and the first year we had our driver's license, we went to 48 baseball games, Reds games, and bought $5 tickets for every game. It was like, um, that's gone. That doesn't exist anymore. No. Uh, well, but. tell me about what's going on in the cricket world these days. So, James Anderson, a pace bowler for England, um, got his 500th wicket this week in a test match against the West Indies, which has been a really exciting test match, by the way. But... Um, as of this morning, he added six more, um, and so he's at 506 wickets, um, which is pretty incredible, uh, and he's only 35. Uh, he made his first appearance when he was 20, uh, and so it, it's, it's phenomenal on many levels, but what's cool about him, and he was kind of a revolution in this way, is that he figured out that he could swing the ball to the left and the right. Um, so essentially he can throw a curveball to either side hmm. and this is what Greg Maddox used to do you know that he he was one of the first ones uh, to make use of a, a trailing fast, fastball um, hmm. that only came in at like 86 87 miles an hour uh, but it was his first pitch strike pitch uh, and it's what made him a Hall of Famer and so I don't know. I just think it's cool, like the nuance of the game, that it, it's he can swing the ball one inch to each side, and that makes him the greatest bowler of all time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's pretty. I just think that's interesting. It's like a cool part of like the nuance game of cricket. Um. Uh, so yeah, it was significant that he got that many wickets and. Uh, he's an interesting guy too that he says he always plays with anger hmm. which I think could be a, a segue into our topic for this week on selfishness um, mm -hmm. it's obviously not anger and selfishness are not the same thing but in my mind how they play out in sports kind of they, they work together nicely Absolutely. Um, and so yeah he says that the the reason for his su success is that he gets really angry whenever he's bowling, hmm. um, which is troubling on some levels, but it, also it is. Uh, intriguing on another level. Well, it's especially troubling to me in that, you know, he wouldn't be pitching like in uh, in cricket. You wouldn't be pitching just continuously for like an hour. You might pitch for 
five minutes and then you'd field for 30 and come back and pitch for five minutes again. Right. Uh, which is just like, so is he angry that entire time or does he just get angry when he comes up <laughs> right. to ball? Like, what? Yeah, I don't know. It, it just doesn't <laughs> seem healthy either way. Like both of those seem problematic in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a good way to live, but he's made uh, quite a career for himself doing it. Well, I'm intrigued. Um, you know, cricket, you have these pace bowlers and you have spin bowlers. And when you were playing, was there one that you uh, disliked more than the other? To bat against? Or? Yeah. Uh, I would probably rather bat against a spin bowler. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I felt more confident doing that. Let's be clear. I sucked at batting. Let's be um, I seem to remember you also tend to turn around a lot and get hit, which would not be, which would be much less fun with a fast bowler than with a spin bowler. Yeah. I, I never figured that out. It was just ingrained in my mind that when a ball is coming at you, you try and make it hurt as little as possible. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the easiest way to do that in cricket is to just let it hit your pads. But it was in my mind that if it hit my shins, it was going to hurt. So, yeah, I got pegged a lot. And well, I got probably, out a lot. They probably told you all the time that uh, when soccer, I seem to remember that they would say things like, your shins don't bruise, they just break. So, I mean, that's like, <laughs> it's like don't let anything hit your shins ever. Yeah. Uh, what's going on in cycling? So this is the day, uh, stage 20 of the Vuelta. Um, super ridiculous hard climb today. The Vuelta just loves these climbs where it's like t averaging almost 20% over 15K, which I just can't fathom how painful that is. Um, yeah. What the big talk at the moment has been about whether or not the sport needs to potentially pursue a salary cap um, yeah. or some kind of financial fair play, something or other, because – we're seeing that there are teams that can way afford to outspend other teams and the potential that that uh, is making the sport less interesting because that those teams now dominate. And so Sky is, of course, the best example where some of the second-tier teams don't even have a team bus, and Sky has just unveiled a two-story, essential, mo essentially a mobile building that they will take with them everywhere that includes like a fancy dining room, a kitchen, uh, all kinds of just crazy stuff um, that is essentially there, another form of their marginal gains. Right. Uh, and they can also just afford to pay salary. So when Sky's got five guys of the remaining 12 guys on a climb, that's just kind of boring viewing at some point. Um, right. And so there's all this talk about for the sustainability of the sport, because what sponsor wants to support a team where A, it's going to take, you know, three times as much as it used to take for them to be competitive, but they also know that they're not going to be super competitive. What does that even mean? So right. anyway, it's a, it's an interesting conversation. I'm always kind of in favor of salary caps, but um, I don't know that that's anywhere close to a possibility at this point. So this is a Sky Sports rule. Uh, them and a couple others. I mean, like Edic's Quick Step has always been one of those ones that's got a huge budget. But then they've this year, um, they had all kinds of questions. Like, I mean, so we're talking the second largest budget team in the sport, 
and they're facing questions about whether or not they're going to exist next year. So the, you know, this is the kind of sustainability questions that cycling has to figure out at some point. Do you think cycling has more decisions to make than most sports? Uh, decisions in what way? In ways like this, I feel like they're, I mean, it, it, it seems like there's so much gray in cycling mm -hmm. and it seems like inherent to the sport of cycling that, you know, like types of races, uh, types of stages, uh, drug, drugging stuff, doping stuff, uh, team formation, salaries, like they have so much gray and for a sport as old as cycling, it seems to be like there's not a, and a clear consensus or a consensus culture in cycling. I mean, I think that goes back to not having a strong leadership body to drive everything. Mm -hmm. um, so you wind up with like individual race organized. So I think last year, um, the, the group that led, that is the main body, the UCI, I think I'm getting this right. They decided that grand tour teams were going to now have eight riders instead of nine. Um, but all of the tour organizers, the grand tour organizers rebelled against that. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's no ultimate authority there. Um, right. But I do think, you know, um, there's something inherent in cycling. You know, I mean, essentially uh, it's as simple as we're going to race for this long and the person that gets there first wins. Um, yeah. But the, it's because of all the variables that go into doing that um it's one of i think perhaps the most difficult sport to keep fair because of how many variables there are in any given moment um right so i mean like you know peter sagan getting kicked out of the tour de france this year i thought that was a terrible decision but it was all done in this name of fairness which we really have trouble figuring out what that looks like right but who knows? Well, I, the gray makes for a lot of good conversations, too. So. <laughs> yeah, cycling is a great sport to argue about. <laughs> oh, my. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to selfishness, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Well, I uh, really want to be the one that starts this conversation because it's important to me. Uh, to have the first word on this. Um, yeah. So do you think selfishness is a good thing in sports? <clears throat> yeah, I think it comes from, or my answer comes from understanding or discussing how it can play out, that I think there's a pejorative nature of selfishness that is quite simplistic. And so too often in sports, I think we're like, oh, that was selfish. When in reality, I think often selfishness, uh, in particular to athletes, makes the sports what they are. And I think the most clear example of this is more than many professions uh, to perform well and to meet job standards as a professional athlete, it requires uh, maybe more selfishness than most professions do. Uh, and so in, in that way, I, I think it, to say like uh, athlete is selfish and call that a bad thing. Um, one needs to understand maybe that like the spectrum is different if we're talking about professional sports. 
I think, I think that, that's where I'd start. Yeah, and we, um, you know, I think we have to start with this recognition that in, in order to be a professional athlete, you have to be incredibly talented, but even more so you have to work just incredibly hard to get there. And mm-hmm. I just don't, I think it's, it would be naive of us to think that you can have that form of self-sacrifice and not have it driven in some part by a, a feeling of selfishness. Right. Yeah. And I think the selfishness as it relates to our bodies is what's really interesting here. Mm-hmm. And this is where I'm interested in kind of like uh, uh, the idea of a body and what it's for uh, is so different for a professional athlete. Um, so for myself, I like want to pursue healthiness, right? Just to be healthy and mm-hmm. have to the extent that it's like good for my relationships in my community. But if your relationships in your community hinge on your body being this pristine Adonis-like entity, then it's just going to take more time. It's going to take more attention. It's going to take more intentionality. Uh, And so for most of us to look like a professional athlete physically would necessitate the word selfish. Like I'm being selfish if my body looks like a professional athlete. Uh, to some extent. Uh, and so that's what I think I mean by like the spectrum being different for a professional athlete. But I think that, you know, there's just, um, you know, I think that there's this line that I'm intrigued by around amb- ambition versus selfishness. Um, in that, you know, I think, there is a, there's always a certain amount of selfishness and ambi- and in ambition um, and that you have to kind of embrace that. But I also yeah. think that it can be very dangerous once it goes too far. And so, I mean, um, you know, I have certain goals that I think uh, when I look at them at times, I'm like, what makes me at all qualified to do that? I mean, uh, uh, you know, there's a small part of us, I think, that probably thinks – you know, one of these days uh, we're going to wind up on Fox Sports 1 as the new sports commentators, right? <laughs> this will be the ultimate death nail for the Fox Sports Network. Yeah, exactly. But, like if we want to run an organization into the ground, it would be a perfect choice. <laughs> I hope everyone is listening out there. Deadspin, we're available. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, you know, I mean, we all have those ambitions. And so I think, um, you know, I mean, I think you with when you were when you're coaching soccer, that there's a part of you that selfishly wants your team to succeed and that, yes, it manifests itself in all kinds of good things. Um, yeah. But yeah. if you break it down in the selfishness, it can be very uncomfortable. Right. Well, and I guess where I find it to become problematic, that being the selfishness of athletes um, would begin with the premise and I'm primarily thinking about individual sports so tennis soccer or tennis uh, golf are the two that always come to my mind first of that I kind of have a firm belief that to be a great tennis player and to be a great golfer one has to be especially selfish 
hmm. and that I think I could make a pretty good argument that the best tennis players in the world are that way because they have a high degree of selfishness and a high degree of like self-mattering. Hmm. And so where then it becomes problematic for me, I guess, is when it's paired with the lionizing of athletes. And so who and what are we lionizing? We're lionizing excellent tennis players, but we're also lionizing especially selfish people. Hmm. Uh, and so I think when those two things are paired together, I'm like, ah, this, this is where it gets into a problem. And I think the problem is one that we always land on when it becomes the seriousness of sports. Well, yeah. And just this idea that, um, uh, that sport that athletes should be role models and things like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that we seem, we idolize that. And I I don't know where that comes from, but I mean, you mentioned the bodies. Um, We idolize the bodies of these athletes um, and we want to be like them. And for some reason we've also started to idolize who they are. And that I think you're right is very problematic. Yeah. The other side of the conversation for me is where I think I can find good selfishness or selfishness that maybe we need to be more aware of the complexity that surrounds it is Mm -hmm. when these athletes do what's good for them. Uh, And in particular, I'm talking about like contracts, getting paid or playing in a city for a team they want to be playing for. Mm -hmm. And the old school idea that a player belongs to a city or to a franchise is rightfully being watered down. It may be something like worth lamenting when we talk about sports as like an inducer of community and sense of belonging and stuff like that. Like, yeah, of course, if our city's team is doing well, you know, there's a slight uptick in like people feeling proud of their city and their franchise and where they're from. Uh, But the, put that on the backs of an athlete is like indentured servanthood. <laughs> and so saying LeBron can't go somewhere or Kyrie can't go somewhere. I think it's good that we're getting, it's becoming more normalized for us to accept that. Well, I think that it's important to recognize the difference between selfishness and um, uh, self-preservation in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I will always kind of side with with Kyrie because I think I can't imagine the frustration of playing on a team with LeBron James. Yeah. Um, and I, so I will kind of always support, and I, you know, this is why KD's move, which I think a lot of people couldn't understand at all. I just absolutely love because this is, these are two situations I think of guys who were not happy it made a move to be happier. And I don't think we can ever begrudge someone that. And if we do, I think it, it's a really dangerous precedent. Yeah. And, you know, I think like the Jersey burning thing, uh, I think that's, well, yeah. And it's, it's 0.0001% of the fan base that thinks that's funny or cool. Uh, and the media makes it more than what it is. But I think the sentiment probably exists in a, still a large swath of fandom in general. Hmm. Uh, and so just the idea of anyone in Boston thinking that Isaiah Thomas is being disloyal 
is really absurd. Yeah. That's really stupid. There's like, you got to be a really dumb sports fan to think that's a thing. Yes, you do. That's <laughs> just really, really stupid. And I, I'm okay with calling it that. And I think it's, uh, you know, I think I've become more okay with time as time goes on with players making these decisions that there was certainly a time when, you know, it was not okay. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we're starting to see this is, you know, as we come to better understand that these are professionals and what that means, um, like no one is going to begrudge you for taking a better job. So, I mean, okay. if you got offered a role in uh, hopefully the next democratic governor of Kentucky's education department, uh, you'd be foolish not to take that. Right. Um, but for some reason, if someone gets offered an opportunity to lead their own team or they get offered an opportunity to uh, take a step forward professionally, that, that, um, that's like, uh, we, we hold that against them in some ways. And I, that's really troubling. And I, you know, I think I'm certainly uncomfortable with people that have extreme wealth. Um, and yeah. maybe this is some of that coming into play as well. Um, right. and that, you know, we don't think anyone should have that much, but I, you know, I don't know. It's hard. It is. <clears throat> I was just thinking about that this morning when I was watching Arsenal warm up and a few players were just like standing off this side, stretching and talking and laughing. And I was like, that's a group of men sitting around having a conversation that are all worth like $50 million. <laughs> <laughs> like, how different is their conversation than just a normal group of people standing around having a conversation? <laughs> if you're worth $50 million, I would imagine your worldview is pretty unique. Dude, you should have seen what we did in Ibiza this weekend. Exactly. Like, oh, I, just, I just bought a fourth yacht. Oh, cool. Yeah, we just bought a fifth yacht. Did, 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 what brand is it? Because we totally had trouble <laughs> with this other one that we got. They're like, you should try this new personal chef that we got. He's really good. Like, okay. <laughs> By the way, I'll never have to pay for a medical procedure in my life. Yeah. I'm going to go. And then, like, I, I jump in the conversation. Like, man, have y'all had Trader Joe's new burritos? They're really good. Yeah, man, they're, they're – uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? Uh, their tortelloni, man, is so cheap. Can you believe how good it is? <laughs> I can get a pound of tortellini for like a, like $3. <laughs> man, that stuff's only like $6 at Kroger, man. Crazy business. Man, that, shit, that shit's organic, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. That was a good digression. <laughs> Well, I guess uh, what um, are there incidences when you think you've seen selfishness manifest in a really negative way? Um, so, I mean, I think of like uh, Luis Suarez being a pretty good example of that, but it, it's like, I almost always want to say they're extenuating circumstances that make it difficult to totally lay the blame in that one place. Yeah, I think soccer is a good sport to discuss that in, especially when you're talking about goal scorers. Uh, I, I think when it comes to um, 
when the team is forced to sacrifice because of a player's selfishness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Le- LeBron might be a good example here. Um, as much as I am a LeBron defender, uh, I wonder how much he improves the lives of, lives of his teammates. Uh, this is really? maybe too, like the the Kobe and Michael Jordan conversation. Well, but I think that it's even more specific with LeBron in that he refused to take less money. So, I mean, like it, at its very core, that was a selfish decision that he, I think, is couching as like this is a stand for players' rights, but at its very core is a. LeBron wanted to get all the money and make it that a statement. And in doing so, he's handicapped that team for years, probably. Right. I do think soccer is good, though, because, I mean, I, I look at red cards as well. That like I, There are very few instances in which a red card is not based on a selfish decision. And, of course, there's yeah. nothing that changes the game more than that. So. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. It's not straightforward. And, of course, it's totally different on, I mean, um, you know, I think the tennis media is loving to make fun of Nick Kyrgios these days um, and wants to talk about him being selfish. But all of those great tennis players, as you mentioned, are all incredibly selfish. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when it manifests in a particular way, that's okay. But it's not – But in those individual sports – um, it's lauded more than anything else, I think, most of the time. Yeah, I guess, too, when it, maybe a way of saying it is when the selfishness is coming in a form that is jeopardizing the integrity of the sport or the institutions that are upholding it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can dip into some really tricky areas of, you know, saying like what we were talking in our euphemism conversation about calling someone a class act or something mm-hmm. and then you, you're dipping into some uh discriminatory language in some ways yeah so i guess in the end i just want to say that i think we need to understand that the way that we want to consume professional sports requires these athletes to be selfish and right. that it means that we need to be a little more understanding of what we see happening yeah I think I'm in the same spot. Um, now, I will say, uh, Phil Jackson being selfish, uh, kind of unforgivable at this point. So, for him to take the contract that he did. Yeah, he's a doofus. <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we do, I think? Let's do it. Man, I can never remember what order we're supposed to go in for this. I can't either. Uh, I think I, it's my turn. I'll go first. Okay. Um, qualifier here. This is my longest one ever. Oh, man. <laughs> so Long, your, long-winded Kyle strikes again. Get, get, get comfortable. <laughs> 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 okay. <clears throat> um. Z2 Madhu writes for SB Nation. He recently posted an awesome article on the complexities of pulling for the Syrian national soccer team. It's been overwhelming to keep up with. There are so many elements, things sports fans would rather avoid. Things like chemical weapons, refugee crises, civil war, censorship, authoritarianism, Donald Trump, 
despotic norms and yet really exciting last minute goals. It would take a miracle still for the team to qualify for the World Cup. To that point, Zito offered up some advice on how to allow for a dictator's propaganda and the fun of soccer to exist alongside each other. He said that the goal of being a sports fan should be to investigate the mystery without ruining the miracle of it. So this is a pretty dense take, and I think it's an important mm -hmm. one. Zito is an immigrant to the United States. He writes really thoughtful stuff for SB Nation where he doesn't get paid enough. He's from Nigeria. My experience with what his life has been like, what his perspective on sports is like, is only to read about what that life is like and only to read about what that perspective on sports is like. Zitu's take makes use of the same love of sports that I have. Zitu also believes that a pursuit of complexity is our only hope. Hmm. He then finishes the article by saying that sometimes the political side will prove too overbearing for the sporting side to be enjoyed, and that's fine. One should have the awareness to decide where that line is. The only inexcusable thing is to be willfully ignorant of politics and sports, because doing so is to decide to not see the world as it is, and in some cases to be manipulated. I want to say to Z2 that this is too kind. I think that I think this allows too much space for the short-sightedness that makes the NFL what it is. This allows too much space because it shies away from describing how streamlined racism and ignorance often is when it comes to something like Syria and Colin Kaepernick. Yes, sports is political, and it's important to remind folks of as much. And yes, it's worth recognizing when progress is evident in the sports world. But let's not keep stopping short of naming the brand of ignorance because the consequence is not just being manipulated. The consequence is knowingly abating injustice. Hmm. So that was a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm intrigued because I think it kind of um, it mirrors some of the same thoughts that I had in my, I think. So um, if it's all right with you, I'm tempted to go ahead and read my piece here. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. There was a time I used to watch NASCAR with a great deal of enjoyment. I'd also watch football with great joy and celebrate the culture. I used to listen to country music with a wry smile about the celebration of nostalgia. However, recent events make me uncomfortable with these pastimes. I think that I think they are not as innocent as I once thought. While I do not in any way think they are in and of themselves bad things, many good people watch and participate in these rituals. However, they also help perpetuate the kind of regressive attitudes that led to Charlottesville and Trump and Richard Spencer. Again, it is not the sports themselves as much as the way they celebrate a life that is long gone and never was very healthy. They have become, quote, safe spaces for those that laugh at safe spaces. They foster and support the white privilege and anger that has become so toxic. We now live in a world where segmentation is everywhere and the world's of NASCAR and football is cut off from the world of soccer and basketball. I do not know how to fix it, but the segmentation and cultural norms fostered by each group are no longer just about innocent preferences over a game. That makes me think of, I may have mentioned it, the, there was an article on Breitbart a while ago that uh, simply was reporting on how therapists in the United States are like maxed out 
Hmm. And that like, it's really hard to find a therapist right now. And all the therapists they interviewed said it was because of Donald Trump. And the whole Breitbart article was written in a way to make fun of that. Hmm. Uh, it just makes you think how harrowing it is that uh, even our own ignorance that kind of, like I said, abated this injustice that was maybe more normalized than a couple white guys could have noticed growing up um, you know, is pretty awful. And I think it, for me, it goes back to the point that you were kind of making that we don't, um, when we think that we can separate sports from society too much, um, that it becomes dangerous for us to to just accept things, and we, there's a risk that we're not seeing the injustices that what we support is enabling. Right. Especially, too, when the injustice is so inherent in the literal escapism we're, like, going for. So, like, mm. <laughs> there's literal day-to-day racism in the NFL, and so it's not just that the NFL is like a mirror to society. It's like, no, this is immediate. It's like, it's right there like in, in the escapism. Um, it's so hard too, because I think we all do. It's important that we all take time for moments of joy. Um, and I think that perhaps some of what we see is just that um, there's a large portion of the society that has no way to experience joy or has never been taught how to do so outside of sports. Right. Um, so, yeah. Well, I'm going to feel real bad when I watch the FedEx Cup next week, but I'm probably still going to do it. I have to confess. <laughs> Fair enough. Same. I gave up on football, so I'm f- one thing at a time, right? So yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, cool. I'm good there. Listen, listen to my white rationalization here. Yep. Um, well, all right. Thank you all for wasting another hour with us here. Uh, we're trying to keep these tighter. I think we did a little better that time, Kyle. But who knows? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure, we wasted enough people's time over this hour. But indeed. <laughs> Come back next week. Hopefully I'll get a chance to read this book. Although if uh, someone wants to read it to me while I'm taking care of this baby that is in my life now, that'd be much appreciated. <laughs> yeah, I got a couple of friends reading it too, so they're anxious to talk about it. Okay. Well, good deal. Right. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Tim.